little meme to show you uh, from the get-go. Really pleased with this meme. What you're looking for um, as a preacher, pastor person is as broad, uh, a sort of an illustration that will reach as many people as you can. Sometimes I get this wrong and I'll put something up there and you can see from the, from the second that I've put it up, nobody's going to be able to reference it. I've been singing it all day. So what I feel like I've done well is it's a song from the 80s, Gloria Estefan. The rhythm is going to get you and it's also, I think, like a meme and a bit of graffiti from today. So I feel feeling pretty chuffed for myself late Thursday night finding uh, the algorithm is going to get you. And I think if you just think about it for a second, you'll kind of know where I'm heading with this. This idea that there is out there um, in the infinite ends of our computers somewhere and the tiniest little bits of our phones or, you know, sent out by the rich and the famous people of the world. There is a system that takes what we're interested in, takes what we look at and we like and sort of exploits it, shapes it, so we are nudged, directed, coerced, convinced, schooled, if you like. Um, all this goes on. There is um, a flow of thought that we live in. And now this is um, the light-hearted introduction, I guess, but it also points towards a serious question because we're not only poked and coerced and directed via our phones, we're, we're directed millions of different ways. There are loads of ways that we are influenced, that we are shaped, uh, that we are molded. And the question I think that I'm sort of putting over this talk, that I want you to sort of pay heed to, is are we, in the, like in the worlds that we live in now, in 2022, just now, with all of these influences, can we really say that we are autonomous human beings, that we are at liberty to step outside of all that's going on and make an assessment of what life is all about, what's right and wrong? Or is it the case that we are on some sort of um, social media, capitalist, whatever, driven conveyor belt that sort of directs us and affects how we see life, how we see the most important things, how we see even what's moral and what's not? That's the question. There's two schools of thought. There's two philosophers uh, that have thought about this. Um, don't let that uh, let you switch off. Just let me introduce these two philosophers. They're really quite interesting stories. Probably two of the most well-known, to be honest, I'd not heard of, I'd not heard of one of them. I didn't know the other one very well, but the two of the most well-known in the last 100 years, a lady called Hannah Arendt. Har Arendt. She was a Jewish Holocaust survivor. She had survived uh, the Holocaust. She'd come out the other end of it. Both these, actually, both these philosophers were, did a lot of their thinking during World War II. They thought about why we were here and their existence and that kind of thing in World War II. And she was determined, after, after she'd escaped the Hulk, she moved to America, she was determined to sort of look back and meet these people that had put her nation through this suffering. That was her investigation. That was her look at humanity. So she tracked down one guy in particular that's become the frame of reference for her philosophy, a guy called Adolf Eichmann. So you won't have heard of Adolf Eichmann either, but if, you've, if you're really into World War II stuff, you might have, there's a few nods there, you might have heard of him. He was the guy who directed all the traffic, sent all the Jews away to the concentration camps. Essentially, um, responsible for the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people. Like an incredible horror, really. So she tracked this guy down I wonder what you think she met, made of this guy. The outcome of her investigation with this guy, believe it or not, was that this was a pretty normal guy. She philosophized 
that it was the system. It's, it's, I couldn't, sometimes when, I've, when I stopped to think about this, I found it really awful to take in, and I didn't quite believe it. She said it's the system. The system she, he was a product of the system that he was in. He wasn't, she, met, she met him, she interviewed him over a long period of time. She said, he's a normal guy. I don't see any hate in him. I don't really see evil in him. He's just a normal guy and he's a product of the system. So her philosophy was that the, the system that we live in, the flow of life, the algorithms perhaps, the influences that we come under can be so strong, can hit us in such a way that our moral instincts uh, can be off. It can dilute maybe our morality. I don't know if that's too strong. Another guy that did something about this was the guy who I had heard of, Jean-Paul Sartre. Um, he was coming at things from kind of, not the opposite end of the spectrum, but certainly from a different place. But he was doing his thinking again in World War II, knocking about in ca uh, cafes in Paris. He was looking at a waiter, and he was mystified by how stereotypical this guy was. He was like, why? He wanted to, I, the reason I count of him, like he wants to scream at this guy. He's like, you don't need to conform in this way. You don't need to behave like this. He thought we were completely at liberty to be whatever we wanted to be. And he met um, a Parisian student of his, came to him to seek out his wisdom about what he should do. And he was asking him this question. He said, should I, in light of what's going on, in light of this flow of life, should I go and, should I stay in Paris and look after my mum? Should I do this or should I rush off and join the resistance? And Jean-Paul Sartre said, sort of looked at him and went, you are free, must have driven, were driven me mad. He was looking for direction, given the flow of thought. And he says, you're completely free. He was an existentialist, Jean-Paul Sartre. He says, we, here, we just exist here. In a sense, I think, as far as I can figure it out, and I'm not a philosopher by a million, billion miles, he was sort of saying, we kind of need to just figure this out. If you want to put morality on it, you can, but you've just got to figure this out for yourself. Don't feel like you need to conform don't feel like this is even the pressure. This is not the storyline. You can step far enough out of this to make a moral decision. So we've got these two things in play. We've got the, can we step out and can we really see what's moral and what's a good thing for human beings to do? Or are we on some sort of conveyable? And what I'd say to you is, I think this plays on our, on our how we figure out um, what life's about all the time as human beings. We might not think about these Philosophers, we might not think about it in this way, but this, this idea, I think this thing is at play all the time when we're working out what's good and what's bad. Let's say you're in um, a sports team, and um, historically, or even in the moment, there's a majority of people that are racist or homophobic or sexist or something like that. And you're in this environment where you can kind of look at it and go, yeah, I know these, these things are wrong things, but actually when you're in that environment, and we've seen loads of stories about this, it becomes, it becomes really difficult to actually live out your morality, to, even to be able to step outside and to see it. You might be a citizen of a country, and you have to forgive me, some of these are just examples. They're not always necessarily strong convictions of mine, but they're examples to get us thinking. You might live in a country where we have made the perhaps moral decision that the amount of plastic, again, it's not really a bugbear of mine, but it's just an example. The amount of plastic that we are getting rid of that's ended up in our like, food chain, that we sometimes dump in other countries, it's kind of immoral. You might look at that and say that it's immoral. But if you're anything like me, something uh, we've had a go at as a family, and failed at ter terribly, was trying to not buy plastic, trying to not con contribute to this. I watched a, 
a documentary where a bunch of celebrities had to actually wear the plastic that they bought. And it was like ridiculous. After, after a couple of weeks, they were just covered in plastic, couldn't do anything. And I kind of looked in and I thought, that's not really even fair. Because we're in this system. We're in such a strong system. It's so ingrained, this like system that we've got. It's just how we work. How can you be accused of being immoral when you're so far inside of this system? You might be a, a youth think of a better way to term it than that teenager youngster everything I seem to say makes me sound more like a 40 year old person a youth who's made like a decision about like moral purity you might you might have taken a step back and gone I do you know I I think actually this 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 is not going to be helpful for a you know pornography I see that it's an abuse, actually. I look at it and I think, maybe that's a little bit degrading to people. It's been an abuse over the years. It's probably not going to help my relationships into the future. Maybe you even look at it and think, actually, I think that we're all children of God. And we need to look at each other a little bit better than that. Either way, you sort of take that step. and you make, you make a sort of decision like that. And I guess I can look back and go, well, actually, I've been in a similar place to this. But the... The nature of the world that we live in. I really like think about what the psalmist says. How would a young man keep his way pure? I look at the world and I go, yeah. How on earth? How can you even like, how can, I look at the youths, I guess, and it's like a couple of 20 years since I've been a youth. And I think, how on earth do you, how on earth do you even see what purity is? How can you even step out of it far enough to see what a good sex life would, would look like given the way that it is? pursued, uh, shown, and exploited to us. So is it, is it just to, to reiterate the question, is it just a case of being as good as we can be? Is that what it's about? Are we just on this, um, in this flow of life and we just need to be as good as we can be? Or is it possible to actually be able to step back and say, that's good, this is a really good thing? Or to use the Christian language, is, it pos- is righteousness possible? Is it possible for us to be like perfectly right? Is that even possible? So I'm going to explore this theme. I'm going to spend about seven minutes looking at a character in the Bible. So maybe the text could pop up now. We're going to look at these two chunks of text that deal with. I think my conviction would be is that the cross um, speaks to all areas of life. Like, I think it speaks powerfully to all areas of life. And I think in this little story, the story of the centurion, I think we get some answers. I think we certainly get an exploration of this issue. So we're going to spend seven minutes looking at this guy, the centurion. I need to give you a few, done a bit of digging around, a few need-to-knows about centurions. So all the way through this little text, of all the people present, as Jesus is beaten up, put on a cross, and crucified, of all the people present, my guess is that the centurion is the guy who's got his eyes focused on Jesus more than anyone else. I don't think this guy takes his eyes off Jesus for this whole time. So I think that really validates his opinion at the end of it. Centurions, first thing you need to know is they are tough, high-functioning soldiers. If you're a centurion, you've got to probably hold command over about 100 men. You've got to be able to instruct 100 like guys and tell them what to do. And they've got, you've got to hold yourself in such a way that they're going to listen to you. You've got to have seen... Three years of action. You've got to have served on the front line. Basically, if you're a centurion, one of the other things I read was that you needed to be of a certain stature and a, and a certain height and a certain intellect. You had to be able to receive instructions and dish out instructions. 
you had to be kind of a solid soldier guy. And you can say about the centurions that they've seen some stuff. That's probably what you'd say about this guy watching Jesus. He has seen some stuff. Second thing that I want to point out, second need to know is that they belong to Rome. They are part of the Roman team. That's their story. That's their gang. Um, I wanted to get a picture up, but I didn't quite manage it. But um, anytime you sort of Google a picture of a Roman centurion, you see them there in all the armor with the sort of feveriat and all of the team colors and all that kind of thing. They belong to this dream that is Rome. They have, centurions have fought and risked their life for this dream that is Rome. They've got their eyes on their villa in Rome as their sort of pension pot. They've bought into this way of life for years and years and years. Rome is in their identity. So it's a, this, this guy looking on is a tough guy and he's a Roman guy. He's got his hail Caesars in the back of his mind. He's got these Roman mantras running through his mind. And in this story that we're going to look at here, he doesn't take his eyes off Jesus. Verse 16 through to 20, read it with me. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace. That's the praetorium. And called together the whole company of soldiers. Now just listen to this and think about order and control and ruthlessness. They put a purple robe on him. Just think about how brutal this bit is. Then they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. When I see set it on him, I'm guessing that that means they had to ram it into his head. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. They're mocking him. And again and again, they struck him. I can't imagine how much this would hurt. Again and again, they struck him on the head with a, a staff. They been bashed on the head by a bit of wood and they spat on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they'd mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. What you'd say about the Romans as they stretched out this empire and they worked out how to keep order for an incredibly long period of time, this empire growing and being sustained for a long period of time, is they knew how to, they knew how to keep order. They knew how to keep the people in line. They knew how to act in such a way that the people would respect him. So they're dealing with Jesus here. And not, this is not just, even for somebody who was guilty of the crime, what they're doing to this, these people in this moment is not just punishment. This is to show that who's in control. So they're mocking Jesus. They're making a crown of thorns. They're ramming it on his head. They're beating him up. They're making a public show. And what they're saying to anyone watching is, we are in control here. The other thing you'd say about the Roman centurions is that they know and I don't know how of the average intelligence of the average Roman soldier, but they knew how to kill somebody. They knew how to do death. They knew the way over the line. I was reading a book by a guy called Lee Strobel, who um, writes a book called The Case for the Cross, details the story of Jesus um, last hours. And he said that one of the things that they, they, did, they would have done to him in this moment, they would have, they would have lashed him, probably 30 lashes. And they, what they would have lashed him with would have been like a leather whip, and on the end of it would have been like a ball, and it would have had bits of bone and bits of metal in it, and they'd have whacked it against his skin. And some of the accounts that I've read, I'm just kind of half-checking to see if we've got any young ones in here. Well, some of the accounts I've read said that they would just be pulling away at his flesh, that you could, ex you could expose um, the backs of somebody who was getting this sort of treatment. Uh, Strobel also goes on to say in his book that 
And maybe you're familiar with this story. The night before Jesus um, died, he was on the Mount of Olives and uh, he's described as sweating drops of blood, which is not just a made-up thing. It's an actual physical condition. So what Strobel went on to say was in this moment, Jesus, Jesus' back would have already been tender. It would have already been vulnerable. And they beat him up in such a way that, and again, Strobel goes on to say, he would have bled out. So maybe you're, you're familiar with the story and you know that Jesus goes up towards Golgotha and he can't continue to carry the cross. And what Strobel says there is that he was suffering with, just let me find it, hypervalectic shock. He said he would have had so little blood in his system, he would just have been dizzy and he wouldn't have been able to carry the cross. You've perhaps heard the story of Jesus on the cross saying, I'm thirsty. Somebody brings him some vinegar. The idea there is that his, uh, his internal organs are failing. I think it's his liver that's failing. And he's just going to be, he's going to stop producing urine and he's just going to be really incredibly thirsty. Often, uh, people being crucified wouldn't have got to the cross. They would have died before they got there. These people knew how to do death. And this Roman centurion, and this is the reason I'm going into this detail, because I'm trying to put you in his shoes and in his eyes, is watching over all this. They make their way up to the cross, and we read the account in verse 33 of how Jesus dies. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cries out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of them there heard this, they said, He's calling Elijah, someone ran. I filled a sponge with vinegar, put a staff on it, offered to Jesus to drink. Now leave him, see if Elijah comes to take him down. He said, with another loud cry, Jesus breathes his last. Then, verse 38, the curtain of the temple was ripped in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, watching all of this, this whole thing, he says, surely this was the Son of God. So just go through that for a second in your head. This is the Roman centurion. Have him in mind. He's, he's seen this sort of thing. He's seen death and this kind of death loads of times, hundreds of times. He has in his mindset the Roman way. Caesar is king. Caesar's almost godlike. Caesar's my pension pot. Rome is my dream. He has these things in his head. And to think anything other than that is to risk his very life, to ruin himself. And then the sky goes black. The veil is torn into. Maybe they hear accounts rushing up from Jerusalem about this sort of stuff. The dead and the sick, the other gospels tell us, are risen up. And then Jesus, and I hadn't really thought about this too much before because I see him as meek and quiet mostly in this moment. He shouts out with a loud voice. He's heard in this moment, but what does he shout? I think he shouts out because he's in pain. I think we could read that. He shouts out for forgiveness of people that don't know what they're doing and he shouts out because he feels abandoned. And though this centurion seen death, seen criminals killed. Have this in your mind. He's seen this kind of thing before. He's schooled in Roman thinking. And he know that it means trouble for him. What does he say? 
this, having watched all this, having seen this man in this moment, he puts all that at risk and he says, I'm telling you, this isn't normal. This is the son of God that we're watching here. You can't put words in a Roman centurion's mouth. You can't write them down. You can't make it up. You can't make stuff up that they didn't say. He would have said it wouldn't have been allowed to be written by the Romans. That was his assessment. What does it tell us, finally? What does this story mean? What does it mean for what we've thought about, whether we're on this big flow of life or whether we can take a, a step aside and see ourselves? I think the first thing that it tells us that it is possible to get that perfect perspective. It is possible to step aside far enough and see what's good and bad and understand what life's all about. That is possible, but it doesn't come from thinking of nothingness, thinking that we just exist like Sartre said. That's not the access to being able to make a good moral decision. It comes from recognizing, as this Roman centurion did, that something selfless, something of perfect love, something that can justify, something that can change, something that's not of this world, something that's divine has happened. It's not coincidental nothingness, thinking that we just exist, that gives us the liberty to make a moral decision. It's knowing that God has acted. It's knowing that something perfect exists. We can know that there's meaning, we can know that there's truth. It's not coincidental nothingness. It's love in its fullness. That's the first thing that we see. The second thing that we see is that there are, we're not making it up, the algorithms that are out there, the influences that are out there are strong and they are many. And they make it, this is, I think this is what we can read from what Mark's saying in this story. They can make it so hard that we can't even see what's good. One of the things I think this story says that we can, we can miss what's good so much that we can have a man like Jesus who lives this kind of perfect life, goes around helping people, and we can miss that good so much that we beat it up and we put it on a cross. That's one of Mark's messages, I think, in this story. The conveyor belt that we're on, the way that we're challenged to think, the way that we're directed, can, this is what he's saying. It's hard to hear, perhaps, but it can mean that we can miss good. Um, there's a lovely little, um, tiny little verse in Mark's gospel where he describes, because I think it's almost bio, um, biographical. There's a biographical moment in Mark's gospel where he describes a guy who sees Jesus on the cross and then he legs it. And he writes it in such a way where you're led to assume but not know for sure that it might well have been him. What he's kind of saying is, yeah, we're all capable of this. We're all capable of missing something that's really good. Life can be like that. We can be so like the centurion, uh, driven by Rome and the dream that is Rome, that we end up looking at somebody who's perfectly good and overseeing beating that person up. We can be so far wrong, but the message of the cross doesn't end there. The message of the cross is this guy who's in this position, who's driven by these motivations and this way of thinking is incredibly pulled back. The message of this story is there is nothing there's nothing, there's no flow of thought, there's no root that you're into, there's no willpower 
There's no philosophy. There's no algorithms that can't pull us back towards righteousness. This is Mark's main point. This is the story that he's telling. He starts off his gospel by saying, this is the story of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's first, verse 1 or verse 2 of chapter 1. And you can almost see this as his ending. This guy, who is the least likely guy in the whole world to get it, just overseeing the death of Jesus, totally governed by Rome, gets it and says, this is God. What he says to us in this story is, if this guy can get it, and it's kind of scary to think about, and it opens, it's a game-changing moment. If this guy can get it, the guy who's in that position can get it and not worry about saying it, then anybody can get it. The, what it says is the cross can reach out to anybody. I reckon you're like me, and we live pretty entrenched in the systems of this world, day-to-day. These ways, ways that we think, ways that we function, that we haven't really even decided for ourselves, ways of being... There's things that we're told is the be-all and end-all. There's loads of things like that. There's nothing that God can't dismantle in your life, show you who he is, turn you around, and head you towards righteousness. Question as we finish would be, what's got you now? What is it that you would say has got you now? It's likely that something has. The thing that I would say to you is, it won't define you, whatever that thing is. Only God can define you, and you need to see him.